Um, we're continuing our series today, and I thought we'd start out with a game. Does anybody just like to play games in here? A few game players? Yeah, well, I'm going to give you a chance to play a game, and we're going to watch a video that um, some of you may have seen before. And what I'm going to ask you to do, and this is part of the game, I want you to count how many times the people with white shirts in this video pass the ball. Like I said, you may have seen this before, but the goal is to count how many times the people with white shirts pass the ball. You guys got it? It's a simple game. It's a 30 second video and it's going to be a little silent, maybe a little awkward, but let's see if we can do it. Let's count how many times the white shirts pass the ball and here we go. Just the white shirts. All right, all right, yell it out. How many times did they pass the ball? Anybody? 16. How many of you said 16? You counted 16. Raise your hand really high. Okay, now keep your hand up. If you counted 16 passes and you saw the gorilla, I got to look out there. You saw the gorilla in the video. Keep your hand up. Yep, some of you are like, what are you talking about? All right, if you saw the gorilla, counted the 16 passes, and saw the person in the black shirt leave the stage, Keep your hand up. Did you see the person leave the stage? All right, I don't see anybody's hands. Maybe in the back. If you saw all that and you saw the background change color, keep your hand up. I got one here. Anybody else? Anybody else? There might be one in the back. Yeah, some of you are like, what are you talking about, Matt? Let's just look at that video again. We're going to rewind it and show it from the beginning, okay? So, so here we go. They're passing the balls. You're counting. So did you see the gorilla come in the picture? Anybody see that? Yeah, okay, that's awesome. And in that, a person with the black shirt on left, now there's only five people, right? And if you notice, the background changed color. Um, now, you would say, I know, Matt, but I was so focused on counting the passes that I forgot everything else, which is kind of the whole point, isn't it? That when we focus on something, we tend to miss other things. And sometimes we have the ability to focus on the wrong things and we miss the best things. And that's what we're going to talk about, what we focus on today. Because we're in this series called Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between. And we've been talking about this idea of how do we bring heaven down? The goodness of heaven, the love of heaven, the forgiveness of heaven, and not bring hell up into our lives. Because we believe there's a battle going on between good and evil, heaven and hell, darkness and light. And whatever gets our attention, gets our focus, is usually the direction we go. And where this starts with most of us is simply the worldview that we have. And we said last week, or two weeks ago, we all have a worldview. And this is what a worldview is. It's pretty simple. That a worldview is a framework of ideas, beliefs, that formulate our perspectives on, interpretations of, and interactions with the world around us. It's how we see things. And our worldview creates a culture in our lives, in our families, in our individual lives, in our parenting, in our businesses, and in our communities. And it affects all of our practices and how it plays out in our lives. Now, this is a little bit of a hard thing to get our heads around sometimes, but we've been talking about this idea that there was a time in heaven where Lucifer rebelled against God because he wanted to be like God. 
And it's not too foreign to us because we all kind of want to be like God. We all want to govern ourselves. And he was cast out of heaven. And then Eve and Adam, man and woman, came along. And they wanted to govern themselves because they didn't want someone else telling them what to do. Because we all have a desire, and this is kind of the theme for today, to live without any hierarchy in our lives. Because we want to be the head of our lives. Yet, when we look around in our own lives and the culture we live in, we're not against culture. say it all the time. But we feel like there's a lot of hell coming up in our world, in our own personal stories. Now, it's interesting. In our world and in the church world, we're kind of living in a day and age where all values are appreciated or are supposed to be appreciated. Now, here's what's cool about our country. We live in a free country, so you get to have whatever values you want in your life. It's kind of an interesting thing. But we're living in a world where we are told, listen, you need to value everyone else's values equally to your values, which is absolutely impossible. Think about it this way. Do you know why you have the values you have? Because you value those over other things, whatever those other things may be. And all value that we have can't all have equal outcomes in our lives, which is a little confusing when I say it out loud. Let me make it more simple for you. Um, one of the big slogans in the last couple of years has simply been this. You do you. And it's kind of catchy, isn't it? You ever said this to somebody, hey, you just do you, and I'll do me, and that's all good, but you do you. And we kind of live by this. And I can certainly live in this world where my world centers around me. And my values center around me. This slogan is a perfect slogan for the post-modern world. And then it leads into this. For me, certainly, and I'm guessing for you, if you look at it you know, from the outside in, is that I just should indulge anything that makes me happy. I just should lean into anything that makes me feel better about my life. And in that, we forget about the community around us, the community in our homes, the community in our church, the community in our towns, and we look around with our kids and our marriages and our relationships and we realize that it feels like we brought some hell up into our lives because I've been so focused around me, I forgot about everyone else in the you-do-you environment we live in. And you know this, we'd all say, hey, the best way to live your life is not just to think about you, but think about other people. But man, there's something in all of us that want to rule ourselves so we get our way. And this has become a little bit of the Christian worldview. And you, you've seen this. This is why when it comes especially to the New Testament scriptures, we have a tendency to go, I really like this one and this one with this one. And I just want to pretend these others aren't here because they don't fit with my worldview. And I really don't want to be governed in this part of my life. And it's why for some of you that may be here that you're like, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a church person. I got invited today. You look at us and you say, this is why the church is full of hypocrites. Because you, you told Jesus you surrendered your life to him and then withheld parts of it. Whether it's love or forgiveness or grace or a way you living out your morality. And we want to talk about that today. And I need you to know where we're going today, especially if you're a visitor, is going to be exceptionally challenging. Today's going to be challenging. And I've kind of had to live with this message for two weeks trying to think through how to talk about what I want to talk about. And we're going to talk about a little letter that Paul writes to a church in Colossia. Um, and we're not going to talk about all of it, just one chapter, because there's not time to talk, all about, talk about all of it. But we're going to look at some things that are uncomfortable. 
But what if somehow God put it in the design of all of us, what we're talking through? And what if we could grab on to God's best intention for our lives? So here's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, since you have been raised into new life with Christ, and maybe you don't know this, that when you become a Christian, you actually have new life in you. Like God puts his life in your old broken life. He says, set your sights on realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. And I love the phrase, set your sights. If you've ever, you know, shot a um, slingshot or bow and arrow or a a firearm, you have those cool little sights and you got to set the sights on where you want the thing to go. That's all Paul's saying. Set your sights on God. Set your sights on heaven, on Jesus, things that are eternal. And then he says, think about heaven. That's really kind of cool. Think about the things of heaven and not the things of earth. There's all this stuff going on around us. It's all temporary and it's pretty broken. And we all, including the guy on stage, we get caught up in the things of earth. But Paul says, listen, you're invited to look at something eternal. And when you look at everything just around you that's temporary, you miss out on God's best. It's a little like watching those basketballs get passed and missing the fact that the gorilla came through the room. Or missing the fact that someone left that stage or you missed the background. And what if we're missing God's best because we're focused on our best? And here's what I have found along the way. God's best is always better than my best. And how do we move forward in that? And and then he says this. He says, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in, this is so interesting, you will share in his glory. And again, we think, no, 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 if I say yes to God, no to me, I'm going to miss out. And Paul says, you have no idea what you get to share in. You get to share in an inheritance that lasts forever. You get to share in God's glory. And we all have seen this inheritance of this world. It just fades at the end, doesn't it? I had the privilege to do a a funeral service this week for one of our beloved people in our church. And I just sat there at the funeral thinking the same thing I always think of funerals. When this life is over, this life is over. But we're invited to God's glory, which begins in this life and extends for eternity. And it's not going to be centered around me and what I want. It's going to center around what God wants and who he is in our lives. And if you're paying attention to our world, which I'm part of the problem in our world, our world's not getting much better. In fact, it'd be easy to say it feels like it's getting just a little bit worse every day with the mess that we all live in. And I am part of that problem when I focus on me. And so this is what Paul says. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. And this is a really big deal to me because I think when Christians read something like that, we think we should be against the sinful things lurking in our world. Like that group of people and those political parties and those protesters, those non-protesters, those people around the world, whoever they are. But Paul says, no, no, I want you to put to death the things lurking inside of you. Because there's enough darkness and evil in all of us for us to deal with and not have to worry about anyone else. But I don't want to surrender sometimes to God. But there's something happening in me, something lurking in me that I needed to deal with. Now, from this point on, the Apostle Paul, he starts to get really personal and address things that all of us struggle with when it comes to what's lurking inside us. This is what he says. Have nothing, this is a big statement, to do with sexual morality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. In other places, the Apostle Paul talks about flee these things, like run away from these things. And we all understand what these things are. It's the thing that you look at 
And then you look at it again and you look at it again and you know you shouldn't have looked at it the first time, but you keep looking at it. It's the thing you click on and you pull up on your phone, on your screen in secret that you hope your wife doesn't find out or your girlfriend doesn't find out. It's that this decision that so many of us have made along the way that said, listen, I know it's God's best, but I'm going to sleep with him anyway, move in with her anyway. When we know clear that God said, listen, I have given you sexuality for marriage between a man and a woman in a way to create intimacy and exclusivity and bring kids into the world. But there can be intimacy between people that are in a marriage relationship. But so often we just go, God, I know you said that. And I know it's that thing that's probably the best design, but I'm going to go with doing me and not doing what you want, God. And we've seen this in our world. We bring a whole lot of hell up in those moments. What's hard is we see other people do that in their lives. We're like, oh no, he's not doing this again. She's not doing this again because last time it was so miserable, but there it goes. And I, I think sex is this beautiful thing that God has given us, but it's under his governance. And when it gets distorted, it just really is damaging. I don't have enough time to talk about this, but I think this is something that as Paul would say, it's like no other sin because you sin against your own body. In this realm, it just does damage to us. And as Christians, I mean, I've been a pastor for 28 years. I told you this was going to be challenging today. I see people that go like, I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus, and I'm moving in with him. I'm following Jesus, I'm following Jesus, and I'm moving in with her. We're going to take a vacation together, we're going to travel together, we're going to sleep together. And it's like, hey, we are following Jesus. Remember, he redeemed us. So we've got to figure out what to do with that. There's an order to things. And then the Apostle Paul, he's like, okay, some of you feel pretty good about yourself because you're not doing those things right now. So let's just level the playing field and bring everybody into this. Oh man, we are a mess because he says this, don't be greedy. And here's news for us all. We are all in ourselves greedy in one way or another. He says, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. He's just like, everybody's included in this because we all want our stuff. Now, it's interesting, when you read through the scriptures, there's basically, and there could be more than five, but there's basically five uses for money throughout the scriptures. And here's the list. It's to spend, to save, to invest, to pay your taxes, and then give some away. What's interesting about this list and the order of this list is this is the culture we live in's order of this list. And this is what it means. That any time you have some assets, some money, you spend it on yourself. That's what you do. That's what our culture perpetuates. And I don't even need culture to tell me that. I just want to do that in my own heart. Spend it on me. And then I'm going to save a little bit because I should save a little bit. I should invest because that might help my kids. But really, these are all for me. And then I got to pay my taxes. I got to pay my taxes because I don't want to go to jail, right? So I'm going to pay my taxes begrudgingly. And then if there is anything left over, I'm going to give some away to something that's eternal. If there's anything left over, I'm going to give it away. But it's so interesting in the scriptures, which just as a side note, if you're a Christian, is what guides our lives. There's another way to look at our money. That anytime we're given any kind of money, we give some away first. Do you know what the litmus test for greed is in our lives if you're a Christian? If you're not a Christian, you don't have to think about this or worry about this right now. But if you're a Christian, you know what the litmus test for greed is? Do I tithe? And I know that's an old-fashioned, old statement, but it's true. When I get any kind of money, do I give 10% away to what God's doing in the world? 
And you'll run into really generous people. We have some in this church. <laughs> like 10%, man, I can go way better than that because I absolutely don't want to be greedy and I'm giving away before I do anything else with my money. This is the scriptural way you handle your money. You give. And then you got to pay your taxes because Jesus said, give to Caesar, what is Caesar's? Just give it. Quit, quit being bitter about it, being angry about it, vote differently, whatever you want to do, but pay your taxes. And then invest in something that is eternal. And then save, because if you don't save, you're going to be in trouble when bad days come, so save. And then just simply live on the rest. And if you do these right, you have plenty to live on and you'll manage your money. But this is the way you do this. And this is how you determine if you're greedy. And somebody, some of you want to argue with me in that and write me letters. I'd be glad to have that conversation. But when I follow the way I want to spend my money versus the way scripture tells me to... I just turn out to be a greedy person and I don't want to be greedy. I don't want us to be greedy. And then Paul goes on because he's just, he wants us to all see God's order. He says, but now is the time to get rid of anger. Got anger? It's not God's order of things. And rage and malice behavior, slander and dirty language. And I don't have time to walk through all these, but we should think about these. This is the way God ordained our lives to push these out and let heaven come in. Don't, he says, don't lie to each other for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. And it's so interesting that a couple weeks ago we talked about hell's greatest weapon is deception. That when we deceive other people that we love, when we think we're deceiving God and hiding from them, and then ultimately when we deceive ourselves, when we tell ourselves something is right when it's really not right, We won't address it or look it in the mirror and deal with it. We deceive ourselves. I mean, you talk to anybody that's in a family that has an addicted person in it, which we hope they come here and get help and we walk with them through that journey, but you talk to anyone that's in a family with an addicted person, it's all about deceiving themselves. I'm not, you know, I'm not sick. I don't have an addiction. I don't have a problem. We got to deal with it. That's what Paul is saying. And then he says this, put on your new nature because in Jesus, you're a new person. And be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. This is the most incredible thing when I think about it. Because what got Lucifer in trouble, what got Eve and Adam in trouble, and what has gotten me in trouble is I want to be God. But Paul says you could be like God by walking in his ways, understanding he rules your life, to know his beauty and his love and his forgiveness and that he created you in all things. It's how you are to be like God. We actually get to be that close to God. And then he says this, make allowance. This is a huge deal. For each other's faults and forgive anyone who's offended you. How hard is that? We talked about this as heaven's greatest weapon last week. To forgive. Remember the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. And some of you last week, you just said, listen, I'm gonna forgive it's been years and I've held that grudge and I'm going to forgive. And some of you, you know, you decided to start working through that process. And I'm so proud of you guys for doing that. And then Paul says above, all clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. This is something that when I was a young man, especially a teenager, I struggled with because I thought that if I let Jesus rule my life, I was going to be robbed of something of this world. 
What I am slowly, slowly learning, and I'm a hard learner with some things, is that the more I follow God's order of things and the way he put things into place, the more peace that comes and less brokenness happens in my life. And as a pastor, I just get, and this is why I chose to do this series. I've gotten a front row seat to the hell in people's lives, and I just wanted to talk about how do we not bring all that up. So here's my question for you. And it's a very tough message today. Here's my question. What, what governs your life? What governs your sexuality, your finances, your speech, and your heart? And he, here's a simple answer. What governs your life is whatever you set your sights on. Whatever you decide to let govern your world be your worldview. If your sights are set on sex as a gratification and what makes you feel good and justifies your, whatever life you're living, you're going to miss out on God's best. If your money and your finances is all about your prosperity and the fact that you can do what you want to do, you'll become the most greedy, selfish person in the world, whether you have money or not. If your speech is all about, I'm going to be right, and I'm going to point out their faults, and I'm going to tell them the truth so I can just be right, you'll be bitter, and people around you will step back, and you'll miss out on the best relationships. But you let Jesus rule your life in a way he just described. Can you imagine what your family would look like, our community would like, look like, the church would continue to look like? And Paul's just on this. And then Paul decides, I want to talk about what happens in the home. I want to talk about in the same line of thinking what happens in family. And this is where it continues to get more uncomfortable. And what I'm about to read most likely is going to make everybody uncomfortable in the room one way or another. So here's what he says. He moves on. He said, wives, let's talk to wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting for the, those who belong to the Lord. Now we're going to come back and talk a little bit about this, but that's the super challenging thing. Like when I thought about this morning at five o'clock when I got up about reading that one passage, I mean, I'm, I'm not afraid of much. I'm a little afraid of the women in our church. So you just need to know I'm a little afraid of you, but I love you. So let's, let's keep talking. And remember, as we read through this, we're a family. And families can have disagreements. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. But I want to talk about this together. This is a harder one for me because he says, husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Do you know how hard that is for me to do with anybody because I can be a harsh person? And then he says, children, children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. And every parent in the place got real old-fashioned and Baptist was like, amen to that, right? Obey me. Now, here's something that I've discovered along the way. I'm convinced that if you do not follow God's order, there's no magic wand that makes your children obey right. I'm just convinced of that. There's no way to just magically turn it in a certain direction. It takes letting God lead you. Like fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. Mothers, that does not mean you get to aggravate the children just because it doesn't talk to you. But fathers, it, it's almost like the Apostle Paul says, I need to talk to dad specifically about this. Do you know your role with your kids is so important? Not greater by any means than a mom's role, but dads, do you know your role as a father is so important and so key, and if you miss it, you mess something up that you have to figure out early and not later? You have a role, and throughout Scripture, Paul and Jesus and Genesis and Moses talk about this order of family, of how it works in unison and in harmony. Now, what I'm going to read next has the potential to really upset 
some people in our room. Just remember, the Apostle Paul wrote it. So if you want to send me an email about what I read next, address it to the Apostle Paul, not Pastor Matt, okay? Just so you know. And, and here's what Paul goes on to say. He says, the head of every man is Christ. And the head of every woman is man. That's the controversial part. And the head of Christ is God. Now, this is the popular thinking around this verse when it comes to saying the head of woman is man. Matt, that was a long time ago, and they thought different. There's different values and different things, and here's what I would tell you. I have no doubt that this is influenced by the worldview from 2,000 years ago. But it does not mean everything is thrown out because the worldview is a little bit different. Our culture was a little bit different. And we can't just throw it out and move on and talk about, hey, let's make our kids obedient, but t- not talk about the relationship of fathers and mothers in a household because he's trying to indicate there's something so very important. And do you know, men, ladies, you can ignore this. Men, do you know why I think one of the reasons this is resisted so much is because we have abused this as men. We've abused, we've been neglected, we've powered up, we've leveraged it for ourselves, and we've put people that should never be compromised in a compromised place in our families. Jesus placed immense value on men, but specifically on women. And the apostle Paul came along and did the same thing. When Jesus showed up on the planet, women were thought in culture as property, which they are not. Something to be traded, bought, and sold along with children. And Jesus said, you're out of your mind if you treat a woman or a child like that just because maybe you can bench press more than she can. It's foolish. It's wrong. God came along. He said, there's immense value on all people in my creation. But with that said, he has a governance for the way the entire universe works. And it's so interesting. Step out of our physical family, our personal family for a minute. That the governance of heaven does function a lot like a family. And it's never about lording something over you. It's never about leveraging it for my authority because it always goes bad when families run that way, when the strongest person in the family, whether it's a man or a woman, leverages their strength for themselves. But just because it's gone bad sometimes doesn't mean we should throw it all out. Think about it this way. You've had a bad dentist experience probably somewhere along in your life. But you didn't stop going to the dentist. You just found a better dentist to go to and work through and a better system because we need our teeth, right? You have had a bad meal along the way, somewhere along the way. You did not stop eating because you had a bad meal and just discard that all together. And I think just because we've had major problems in the way it's functioned um, doesn't mean we throw out God's entire order with our family and the way things work. So let's just think about this idea of the family of heaven. There's singular headship in the family of heaven. And there's plural leadership in the family of heaven. And there's distinct functions in the family of heaven. When you think about the family of heaven, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the way the family in heaven works. And God governs them all. Because together they are God. It says the head of Jesus is God. Because God governs them all. And the Father creates. And the Father leads. And the Father has you know, that, that authority with Jesus, the Son, he redeems all things and the Holy Spirit comes along and he empowers all things. It's this beautiful picture of these three parts of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit working in harmony. There's different roles, there's different functions, but it's harmonious and heaven is so perfect because of it. And that's how we get the leadership of heaven. And then we think about how heaven flows down and we have the hierarchy of church. 
And I understand why some people think that when people say, hey, who's the head of Lifehouse Church? Well, it's Matt because he's got a strong personality. He's pretty dedicated to leadership. But I would tell you that Matt is not the head of our church. Jesus is the head of our church. It's the hierarchy of God. We are the bride of Christ. I get to be the lead pastor for a time, but I'm not the head of our church. And after Jesus is the head of our church, then we have elders, and then we have pastors, and then we have staff, and then we have all you incredibly gifted people using your gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's why this church has been so successful, because we've leaned into that. And that trickles down from the church into the home. And again, this may feel like a struggle for you to think there's some kind of hierarchy in the home. It was never meant to create inequality. But if you think about it, you go all the way back to the beginning. God placed man and women over the garden to tend it and take care of it. But when they messed it up, this is a terrifying thought to me as a father and a man. When they messed it up, the person God came for first was Adam. And he was accountable first. It's terrifying to me to be a leader in that way. And then it was Eve, and then it was the serpent. And I am in no way here to debate about roles. Listen, I don't care who does the dishes in your house. I don't care who works and doesn't work. You figure all that out. It's about God. You have aligned something in our lives, and we want to be on track with it. i got to keep hurrying. I'm running out of time. So let's just go back to this idea that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Again, that there's some structure... And here's the dangerous part. We live in a culture where because this is messed up sometimes and it's turned out ugly, we want to throw part of this out. And this is where I wanted to end up today. I'm convinced that where we're such a mess and what's really going on is the nuclear family in our world is dissolving. And we've stopped placing a priority on the family. And I'm about to talk about some really painful things that I need to process through with you guys. But know at the end of this message, I'm gonna share my greatest failure. So as I talk and you feel like a failure, know my failure is coming right behind that. So I wanna take just a minute and I wanna talk about this idea of divorce. And if you're divorced or thinking about getting divorced in this place, I'm so glad you're here. And if I could sit down and hug you and tell you I love you just so you know that, I would. But I have to talk about this. Do you know the impact of divorce? That research tells us, not Christian research, but just research, that 30% of all single moms live in poverty. And 25% are more likely to have a substance abuse issue. And 60% are likely to divorce again. And 80% are more likely to deal with stress than other women in other relationships. And single moms, we know you carry way too much load. And maybe all this is is a call to fathers to step up. But we have to recognize maybe something is broken in this world. Let me go on. The impact of divorce on kids. The kids that come from a divorced family, they're 35% more likely to divorce themselves. And 50% more likely to have physical health problems. And this is just secular research. You can find it anywhere. And they're 65% more likely to deal with addiction. And 300% more likely to deal with psychological issues. Take one more step and talk about the impact of fatherlessness on children. This role of a father in a child's life. Hang with me. If I'm breaking your heart, hang with me. The 85% of all behavioral disorders we find are are children that come from a fatherless household or a a household where the father is not engaged in a child's life. 
And 90% of all homeless or runaway children come in a, in a place where the father wasn't present. And 63% of all youth suicides are in that same place. And five times of children are more likely to live in poverty when a father is not around. Goes on. Seven times percent more likely for teenage pregnancy and nine times more likely to drop out of school and 20 more times to end up in prison. Here's what I'm convinced, moms. If you weren't around, these numbers would be 10 times bigger. All I'm making of the point is maybe there's something to the order that God created family for a husband and a wife to raise kids and figure that out. But if you're in a place where you feel like that's already broken, hang with me. We just can't throw that out. And you may say, well, Matt, you're just stuck in the past or you're just really liberal. You're just really conservative. You're a Republican, you're a Democrat. I don't care about any of those things. What I care about is what is God's order for our lives? And when we distort the system that God put in place his design, maybe we're, t- we're marching down the wrong road. Maybe if we just at least give this some thought to the governance of family and heaven and church and our homes, things would be different. Now, I recognize for some of you, maybe like, this is the worst news in the world, Matt, because I'm past all this. I'm out. I'm a divorced person. I'm a single mom. I'm a single dad. I never had a dad. I get that. This is where we find hope in the truth. Because instead of just going, hey, does not matter? Who cares about God's order design to things? What if we turned to God and leaned in to his healing And his knitting us back together in our brokenness. What if we held on to what the psalmist said. When he said God is the father to the fatherless. That when we find ourselves in a broken place. Or you're a single mom trying to raise kids without a husband. That you lean into the heavenly father that loves you. If you're a single dad and you don't have a mom around for your kids. That you lean into the Holy Spirit who loves your kids more than you do. What if we went down that road? He's the defender of the widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy and he places the lonely in families. You know why maybe you're here? It's the same reason maybe Nathan was here when he told his baptism story. Because he needed a bigger family to help him understand God's love. When he started this series, we set out to answer this question. What's really going on? Why are things such a mess? And what if with us, I'm not talking about them, whoever them are on the outside of these walls or not sitting in your living room at home, but what if with us that we forgot God's order of things? And what if we decided to let God rule our lives as husbands and wives and individuals and parents and leaders in our community and our own lives because we're broken? And we chased after the dream and the next generation saw us as adults and parents. And we stopped just going, hey, the world's telling you, you do you. That, that is not where we're going. We do not want to bring any more hell up in our lives. We want to figure out how to bring heaven down. We've had enough of this. And if you're like, oh, this is terrifying, and what if I can't overcome this? Here's what you need to know. Paul also says, he says, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves, which means you can do what I'm talking about and what Paul's talking about. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. That's the answer for our lives. Now we, are called, we call him Abba, Father. So I told you I was going to tell you about my brokenness just a little bit in this, why I'm so convinced of what I'm telling you. And it's not just because of what I believe. It's not just because of my theology. It's because of what I've experienced. A couple weeks ago, I, I talked to you about my story. 
If you haven't, didn't see that, go back and watch it. It's called Something for Every, Everyone. And I talked about my son, Jeff, who I found out existed when he was 10 years old. If you didn't hear me tell it, you need to go back and hear me tell the story. And I didn't meet him until he was 10 years old, and I was so heartbroken, and I met Jeff. Um, and we reconciled, and I asked Jeff to forgive me. And I told you the first part of the story that put a sweet bow on that story, that him and I were all good, and we reconciled. But it wasn't all good all the way along the way. There's ups and downs. And a couple of years ago, I noticed that Jeff wasn't responding to me when I was talking with him, calling him. In fact, he didn't want to talk to me at all. In fact, a year went by and he wouldn't respond to me and it was not his fault. So hang on to that. And finally, I talked Jeff, my son, who's now at the time was 31, 32 years old. And hey, can we just have a conversation? Can we just talk this out? And so he finally agreed and I just let him talk for an hour and a half. And basically what he said to me is, dad, you tell our story all the time about how you found out about me and it changed your life. But I didn't have a dad for those first 10 years. And it was kind of an on and off dad thing because we didn't live in the same place. And I didn't get what my brothers and sisters got. And I just sat and listened. And I thought to myself, there it is. There's the brokenness when God's family is not put back together right. And the only thing I had to say to him after that hour and a half conversation is, Jeff, you are 100% right. It was my fault and I robbed you of having the father that Jake, Josh, and Meg had and the home they had. And I can't make up for it, but I'm gonna ask you to forgive me. But in my heart, I also knew something else, that God is the father to the fatherless. And Jeff, your heavenly father can be your father where I couldn't. And I'm sorry, I can't undo that. But I recognize how broke something was. Six months after that conversation, I showed you this picture a couple weeks ago, Jake, Jeff, and myself went hiking in the mountains. I'm still convinced Jeff tried to kill me up there because that was just so intensely hard hiking. But I thought, man, we can redeem this, but you can't just go, it doesn't matter. You can't just say God's order of things doesn't matter because it matters so very much, but he can redeem it. And where God redeems things and we, when we say, this is broken, my worldview is broken, and I want you to help me put it back together. I'm gonna stop doing foolish things and start living in accordance, Jesus, to your rule. And I'm going to go back and read Colossians. I'm going to try and make sense of it. But if that's the way I'm supposed to live, I'm going to try and figure that out for me, my children, my family, and the next generation. You see, our young people and our old people like me, the slogan for all of us right now is you do you, you do you, you do you. What if that changed and we just said not on my watch anymore? I'm putting a stop to me doing me because that has messed everything up in my life. And I started to say, and you started to say, and you online started to say, and we taught our kids to simply say, your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm going to surrender to your governance, God. I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to make mistakes. Our family's still going to be broken, but I'm not going to leave this behind. I'm bringing this with me, God. Your will be done. I think this is the only way forward, guys. It's the only way to stop bringing hell up and start bringing heaven down. And I'm inviting you, and I'm inviting myself, and I'm inviting God's spirit to give us the strength to do this.
to simply say, your will be done in my life, in my family's life, in any part of the world that I'm connected to, your will, your will be done in me. The choice is ours. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. But God's ready and waiting to be a father to the fatherless, the helper to those of us that are broken, that ask him to come in for help. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that I get to talk about this today as hard and as difficult as it is from, man, almost every aspect. And I pray, Lord, that this would just cut through all of our defenses and all of our doubts and fears, and we'd still wrestle with those and we'd still have conversations. But at the end of it, recognize, God, that you do have a system in place, a worldview in place, and how to view our own lives, our sexuality, our money our speech, our families, our parenthood. Help us to follow you. And every time we get it wrong, God, remind us that we're not cast out, we're not put up for adoption to somebody else, but you just hug us closer and try to steer us in the direction that's best for our lives and ultimately best in your kingdom. And thanks for your love and thanks for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.